bonus lecture of The Psycholinguist, we're talking about some new research that puts a new context on the Skinner versus Chomsky debate. And by new research, I actually mean old research that's been rediscovered recently. Okay, so there is, this is a like a late-breaking kind of uh, really... Um, recent development to the um, behaviorist versus uh, universal grammarian argument. Uh, so this is some new data. When I say new data, I'm actually completely lying to you because this data is actually not all that new. Um, the, the, the work started in the 60s, uh, but it wasn't published until 1995. Now, I know 1995 is like uh, 25 years ago, so that's also not new. Um, except, even though it was published in 1995, uh, the universal grammarian idea was still uh, really dominant at the time. So this wasn't given a lot of play. Also, the two researchers who published this information uh, came from a university that is it's a good university but it's a little bit lower in the rankings it's not you know a, a huge research university um and unfortunately even though anybody can do good science um it seems like that does play a part in how much attention some papers get so uh it wasn't really discovered until 2015 2014 2015 so now we're up to like 5 years ago uh, that this was rediscovered. Um, then it was reanalyzed in 2015 uh, by a group of researchers with more sophisticated, um, you know, tools, more sophisticated um, statistical tools. Uh, and they found um, a few more um, nuances to the study. Uh, but then even though that was published in 2015, it wasn't really disseminated until, you know, sometime between 2015 and the last two years. I just recently learned of it. Um, I think it's really interesting. So we are going to talk about it really quickly right now. Okay, you've probably just uh, listened to my podcast about universal grammarianism versus behaviorism. To very briefly summarize, behaviorists say that uh, language is going to be something that is learned. Everything is learned. Nothing is innate, right? It's just something that develops. Universal grammarians, of course, there's uh, um, a kind of a spectrum of universal grammarians. Uh, some are a little bit more crazy, woo-woo out there than others, and... Um, but essentially, they believe that there is uh, some sort of innateness to uh, language, that humans will develop language um, regardless. We're just pre-wired that way to develop language. Now, there is, I mean, you've seen um, the evidence that I posted about the, I think, the Piraha people uh, in Brazil that kind of goes against... Um, the universal grammarian argument 
But really quickly, I do want to bring up um, the case of the feral children. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but there are some feral children that uh, I'm, I'm not recording in my closet right now. It was too late breaking, so I couldn't get into my closet. I, it was booked. It was booked up solid. The moths were... They've got it booked up for the entire week. Anyway, um, so anyway, because of that, I've actually got my computer here in front of me. And I can very quickly, since I'm talking about feral children, tell you about um, who they are. So what I know is that there are these feral children who sometimes are, it's usually a case of abuse by the parents. They get locked up in um, a room for a very long time, you know, sometimes up to 13 years or beyond that. Um, when there are two uh, children together, they end up creating their own language, or they can end up creating their own language. So um, they have... Uh, the two girls that I'm thinking about, um, they've got a combination of grunts and sounds that they've used and then also gestures that they'll use with each other. Um, and so this is evidence that maybe the universal grammarians are correct, that language will develop um, in the absence of any uh, formal, you know, teaching. Okay. So there's a little bit of evidence, kind of anecdotal evidence, in favor of each position. Let's talk about the actual research. So there's a paper, the paper published in 1995 by Hart and Risley, which I'm going to post to Canvas if you want to take a look at. It's not going to be on the test. It's, it's just something for you to look at if you're curious. Um, essentially what they did was they looked into the efficacy of Head Start programs. If you're not familiar with Head Start programs, these are, um, you know, programs for children uh, from disadvantaged families to try to get them up to speed with their peers before they start school. So it's trying to get them to perform uh, more like their, uh, you know, more advantaged uh, peers. And what they found was, Head Start does not really work, and the reason it doesn't work is, uh, even at age four, um, the kids from what looks like low socioeconomic status um, families are already showing a disparity gap in terms of language. This language gap, they don't have as sophisticated of language, they don't um, use language as much. Um, that correlates with a gap in schooling, in knowledge, uh, in their mathematics ability, their language ability, their reading ability, everything that goes along with schooling. So if they're already exhibiting this, uh, this gap by Head Start, um, and Head Start doesn't really do anything to reduce the gap, then it must be something that's happening earlier. So this is where the Hart and Risley study that starts in the 60s and goes till 95 uh, shows up, is they looked at children from different families, three different levels. So um, a high socioeconomic status, a middle 
uh, socioeconomic status and low socioeconomic status. When I say high SES, I don't mean like, you know, the Bezoses and uh, the Bezai, maybe, is the correct plural of Bezos. Um, I don't mean the Bezai and the Gateses and, uh, uh, you know, the basketball players' children. Like, we're not talking, like, really, really rich. We're talking, like, professors' kids, right? So, I mean, like, sure, the income is great, say, around, depending on the school, depending on the position, it probably averages out to about $100,000 for a professor's salary. Uh, I don't make that much, but whatever. So, um, on average. So then, we're not talking about these upper echelon people that are like, I make $500,000 a year. We're not talking about them. We're talking about something that's like somewhat somewhat attainable, right? Um, then we've got middle income, uh, which is, you know, I'm guessing around 50000 Then we've got people that are below poverty, which I believe poverty, the last time I looked, is at $23,000 a year, and below that is poverty. So we've got these three different groups. Uh, what Hart and Risley found was in the high SES group, there's a lot, children are exposed to a lot of words. Um, and I mean, I don't mean different words. I don't mean like the word a, and then the word dog, and then the word sits. Um, I mean, yes, those are different words. And if they were exposed to those, they'd be exposed to different words. I mean, just total number of words. So you could have a conversation and say, the dog sits. Look how good the dog is. The dog is running. The dog isn't sitting anymore. And you've used dog several times, but it's still, we're counting like total number of words. So each time you say dog uh, is counted as a new instance of dog. So that's what I mean by number of words. So it's basically just the number of words a child is exposed to. And when I say exposed, I mean they're in this conversation. They, people don't have to be necessarily talking to the child, they're, but they're, you know, in the conversation. Uh, but it can also, it does correlate with people talking to the children as well. Okay, so um, there's a lot of word exposure for high SES families. For middle SES families, there's less. And for the low SES families there is a significantly uh, fewer number of words that children are exposed to. In fact, the finding that they, uh, that Hart and Risley come to is that by age three, uh, children in low SES families have been exposed to 30 million fewer words than high SES children. 30 million fewer words. The, in addition to that, the types of words are different. There's a lot more um, description that's going on in the higher SES families than in the low SES families. There's more just like commands and responses in the low SES families and not as much discussion. Um, so in addition to just fewer words, there's also fewer types of words, fewer types of language, fewer methods of communication. Um, okay, so I said in the very beginning of this that it looks like it's low SES. But that's actually not 
True. So that we've covered the study that was published in 1995. Oh, I should talk about this in respect to behaviorism and universal grammarianism. If the children who are exposed to fewer words are showing a language gap, that means it is not just universal grammarianism that's at play. This is not something that's innate. There's some sort of training going on. There's some sort of possibly a behaviorist process at work. Now, of course, you know, you've listened to me talk about natural regularities and junk like that. And you know that I think it's going to be these natural regularities. You're exposed to how language works. You're exposed to the different types of language. And the more you're exposed to it, you learn the regularities of language and thought and discourse and basically just, you know, scholarship, essentially. And yes, uh, I think I've probably said this before, but um, natural regularities are kind of like behaviorism in disguise, really. They're very close to the same thing. There's a little bit less um, <laughs> pigeon teaching pigeons to play um, tennis in, in terms of natural regularities, just kind of like learning what's out in the world. Uh, but of course, this would be the way that you end up getting pigeons to play tennis. Uh, but anyway, natural regularities are, are really closely related to um, behaviorism, way more than they are universal grammarianism. So this looks like proof of um, a behaviorist process. Language is not innate. It's something that is trained. Uh, and if we go to the very basic, if I'm, if I'm going to give the most concessions I can, maybe this is proof that it's an interactionist philosophy, something more closely akin to what Vygotsky says. Maybe there's some innateness to the language and these kids, these kids are being deprived of a lot of the exposure to it, so they're having to just rely on uh, a lot of the innate processes. Maybe. But certainly, this proves that it's not just universal grammar. It proves that that is not the only thing at work. It's not innate only. And I think it's not innate at all, but I, I will leave some room in there for people who say it's an interactionist kind of thing. Okay, but now let's talk about low SES. Does it make sense that just not having a lot of money uh, makes you worse at talking to your children? Not really. I mean, I can see how those would be correlated. I mean, for one, you know, sometimes, you know, poor families just simply don't have the time um, to put in as much uh, <laughs> time talking to their children. There's um, often instances of somebody working multiple jobs. A lot of times low SES families are a single parent household because, you know, that's why they end up being low SES is that you don't have two people working, so you're not combining income. So if you have one person working, they just don't have enough time to spend with the children, right? So... Yeah, I can see certainly how these things would be correlated. But the Hart and Risley study looked at the data and they said it looks like socioeconomic status is the thing that pushes this difference. Now, yeah, I agree it's probably something related to socioeconomic status. It's probably not socioeconomic status on its own. 
Um, but what is it? Well, that's what I was talking about. In 2015, there was a paper that looked into this with more sophisticated um, statistical methods. So they broke down some of the data that Hart and Risley gathered, and they wanted to know, is it actually socioeconomic status, or is it something else? So they did what we call a regression model, which essentially puts in uh, multiple types of data to figure out which of these different things contributes to uh, one overall score. We're going to talk about this in another podcast later, but um, so let's say here's one example that I remember working on when I was in graduate school is we have um, salary is something that we want to look at. We want to look at what contributes to someone's salary at a company. We have their seniority. We have their um, performance reviews. We have, are they male or female? We have a couple of other things. And what came out of this data was <clears throat> what you hope you see is that it's only seniority and performance reviews that significantly predict salary. But I think you can probably guess where this is going. That's not the only thing that predicted it. Gender was also a significant predictor of salary, which totally unfair, but um, it's just proof of that wage gap, right, that we always hear about. So this was saying that, yeah, the more seniority you have, you're going to get paid more, and the better your performance reviews are, you're going to get paid more, but if you're a woman, you're going to get paid less. So that's what a regression model does. It can tell us which of these are significant predictors, which is the most significant predictor, which uh, items do not significantly predict at all. And one of those was um, marriage status in the thing that I was looking at. So if somebody was married or not, did not play a significant uh, role in their um, pay structure. Did they have children? That didn't play a significant role in their pay structure. So, okay, so now we want to talk about socioeconomic status and other things. So this reanalysis of the data broke apart some of Hart and Risley's original data. They looked at socioeconomic status. But another thing that was inside of socioeconomic status was not just wealth, but also um, parental education. Now, of course, if we're talking about professors' kids who taught at this university, uh, they're going to have, you know, kind of a leg up in that category. They're professors, they've achieved the highest degree in the land, so of course they're going to get top marks there. But there's something else that went into the score of figuring out parental education. Yes, it's parental education level, but it's also parental educational behavior. That's another thing that was looked at and measured in the study. Now, parental educational behavior simply means how are the parents talking to their children and scaffolding knowledge for them? Like, what are they doing to really help educate their children and be teachers to their own children before they actually get uh, into the school setting? When you take SES and break it apart into wealth, education, and then parental educational behavior, something else emerges. Yeah, it's not socioeconomic status that is the main determinant. It is parental educational behavior. And so what that means is, sure, 
Parental educational behavior might be correlated with wealth. People who are more well-off can have the time and freedom to be more, uh, to engage in more educational behavior than people who are struggling to just, you know, put food on the table, of course. But that doesn't mean that rich people always do that. And it doesn't mean that poor people always don't do that. And what this reanalysis shows is that that's the determinant. Okay, so I think that's really cool because what kind of seems like a lot of studies show is just like, hey, and I'm talking about all these different social um, type things that we can look at. Anything you look at, you know, crime, uh, intelligence, all this stuff, it all comes down to socioeconomic status is where people say. And basically... The message that you take from this as you're reading these studies is you're like, so if you're poor, you're screwed. They're, you're, 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 you're not doing well. You're not teaching your children to do well. They're going to be screwed too. There's really no way out of this hole is what it can feel like. But this study goes against that because they've broken it down into something else. They're saying it's not wealth. It doesn't have anything to do with how much money you're bringing home. It has to do with your interaction with your child or the way that your parent interacted with you. So you can get out of that low SES hole. And the way that you can get out of that low SES hole, um, you know, through the generations is engaging in this parental educational behavior. It doesn't take a rich person to do that. It makes it easier, but it doesn't make it uh, possible or impossible. It can certainly be done at any socioeconomic level. Um, and that would probably require that the parent might um, try to enhance their own education um, because maybe, you know, they don't have a high educational level. That might be why they're at a lower socioeconomic status. But if they do that and then engage the child in conversation, different types of conversation, talking about different kinds of things, they can push that child into doing really well in school. And another thing that we know is that doing really well in school correlates with doing really well uh, outside of school in the job market. So anyway, two main things from this study. Number one, this is showing us that universal grammarians are not right. It is not only a universal thing. There's absolutely a behavioral component to language and to success. Second, it's not just SES that's pushing this. It's parental educational behavior. Uh, and then I guess the third thing is, if you're a parent, talk to your kids. Make a point to have more conversations with your kids, deeper conversations with your kids. Talk to them about, you know, current events, all sorts of stuff like that. Listen to their stupid stories about their favorite TV show, because just giving them that um, conversation is worth it. You can roll your eyes at, you know, their TikTok videos as much as you want, but talk to them about it. Uh, and if you don't have kids, but you know somebody who maybe doesn't talk to their kids a lot, when you're over there, engage that kid in conversation. But really, mainly what we need to do is just keep conversation flowing. Conversation makes it easier to do well in school, and then, of course, doing well in school. Uh, you do well throughout life. Okay. That is what I wanted to tell you. If you want to read these studies, I'm going to post them on Canvas. I think they're pretty interesting, even if you just read the uh, abstract. 
which is just like a summary. That's okay. Just a little bit extra information. But you don't have to read them at all. They're just there for, for extra. Just, just for your own interest. Okay. Well, I'll talk to you later. Psycholinguist is brought to you by Thai Chili Hot Wings.